And the last two Sundays, we've been making our way through First Peter, and we've been considering what it looks like to be a winsome wife and the kind of husband every woman wants. And in honor of Mother's Day, I thought it would be appropriate and helpful to provide an illustration from the Old Testament of a winsome wife and the kind of husband no woman wants. It's the story of Nabal and Abigail found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. But as we've been working our way through the latter half of 1 Peter chapter 2 and most recently chapter 3 verses 1 through 7, this story kept coming to my mind, not only because it's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, but uh, I think a lot of the principles that we've been learning about in 1 Peter here and the most recent verses that we've looked at uh, are personified in this unlikely couple. And we've looked at this story before and you may remember me noting that it has all the elements of a Cinderella story. And from the time you gals are little girls... It seems that your hearts are drawn to the story of Cinderella or Cinderella-like stories that involve a beautiful maiden being rescued from some cruel, tyrannical dictator or some evil, oppressive situation by a, by a handsome, charming prince and they ride off into the sunset and they live happily ever after while the antagonist, the abusive man or the evil stepmothers and mean stepsisters of the world spend the rest of their days getting what they deserve. Well, unfortunately, not every relationship or situation in life has a fairytale ending. Miserable circumstances don't always change. Justice is not always served. And every wrong is not always righted, at least not in this lifetime. Oftentimes, bad situations in our lives stay the same, and the bad people in our lives get off scot-free. There may be some of you who find yourself this morning in a very painful, difficult, and seemingly hopeless situation, similar to the one that Cinderella was in wondering if you will ever escape. Just to put it in modern terms, let me read for you one particular scenario that's shared in a book called The Legacy of Faith by Lydia Brownback. And this is how she describes what I'm I'm talking about this morning. Kara did everything she could to avoid social events with Nate. Over the years, his drinking had gotten worse, and even on those occasions when he consumed no alcohol, he was loud, rude, and belligerent. He deliberately made provoking remarks to anyone who displeased him, and trouble would inevitably ensue unless Kara was at his side to smooth things over. He was even hostile and rude to her in front of others. Finding excuses to keep Nate at home was the easiest way to avoid social situations. Oh, he was just as nasty to care at home as he was in public, but at least there she didn't have to feel the shame of other people's pity. 
Kara had scrambled desperately for a plausible excuse to decline this wedding invitation, but it was the marriage of the daughter of Nate's boss, and naturally Nate had insisted that they attend. Upon arriving at the reception, Nate had gone straight to the bar. Kara could tell that one of his bad moods was already brewing. Apparently, he had felt slighted due to an offhanded remark made by a colleague on the receiving line. As Nate belted down drink after drink, his voice got louder and his tone became jeering. Then, just when Kara thought the situation couldn't get any worse, Nate had made an inappropriate, crude, and rancorous remark about the bride. Silence fell over the cluster of guests standing nearby, and much to Kara's horror, she saw that Nate's boss, the bride's father, was in their midst. Gracious host that he was, he made no comment But his face reddened in anger and he turned on his heels and walked away. Kara wanted to die. Not only had Nate made a fool of himself, he had unquestionably jeopardized his career, their sole source of income. Kara no longer needed a polite evasive excuse to leave the reception. Others were glad to see them go. She laid hold of Nate's arm, forced a smile onto her face and whispered, we're leaving right now. Her frantic tone only angered Nate, who rebuffed her urgent pleading. At that moment, an observant couple had quietly approached, asking if she needed help. Holding back tears, Kara accepted. Together, they persuaded Nate to leave, and they helped, him, helped her get him out to the car. After a word of embarrassed gratitude, Kara slipped behind the wheel, and it was just before she drove off that she heard the woman mutter the all-too-familiar comment, what an unlikely couple. It pains me to think that there may be someone in this room who would have to endure such a, a shameful scenario as that. But if that's you, you're not alone. Because Abigail was faced with a similar scenario. And as we're going to see here, In 1 Samuel chapter 25, this story reads like a a Cinderella story. But but it's not just some Hollywood script or a Disney story, but it's a true life story that actually happened some 3,000 years ago, and God preserved it for us here in the pages of his word to provide us comfort and, and hope, particularly to anyone whose situation in life resembles that of Abigail's. Now, before we, we look at this riveting story, we need to be aware that this really is not a story about Abigail, as much as it's a story about David. And the soon-to-be king of Israel is the main character of this story, and Abigail is really just the supporting actress. First and second Samuel uh, were written by Samuel as he was moved along by the Holy Spirit to record the transition of leadership in Israel from the judges to the kings. Uh, Samuel was the last judge and the first prophet of Israel who God had raised up to anoint the first two kings of Israel. And the nation of Israel became a monarchy when when the people chose Saul to be their king and Samuel saw the writing on the wall that that wasn't their best choice, and so he reluctantly uh, anointed Saul at God's command, 
But it wasn't long before Saul sinned and Samuel was given the unenviable task of telling him that God had rejected him, rejected him as king and was, had commissioned him to anoint David in his place. And so the young king-elect served faithfully in Saul's court until he was forced to flee from Saul's insanely jealous attempts to kill him. And even though there was clear indication that David was the rightful heir to the throne, slaying Goliath with nothing but a, a slingshot was one indication. Maybe a more obvious uh, indication was that Saul's own son, Jonathan, relinquished his right to the throne to his friend, David. And yet David had to live on the run like a fugitive playing cat and mouse games with, with Saul and his men. But this was all part of God's plan for preparing David to be king. And during those long, hot days and cold, lonely nights hiding out in the wilderness, God was testing David and teaching him invaluable lessons that would serve him well in his future role as Israel's king, not to mention his future role as the psalmist of Scripture. And here in 1 Samuel 25, we see one of those God-ordained tests that David had to face. David's predecessor, Saul, was an impatient man who had failed to trust God and wait upon God and rushed ahead of God by assuming Samuel's role as priest, and he offered burnt offerings at Gilgal, chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. And it was for that foolish, impetuous act of disobedience that God chose David to replace him. Listen to the words of Samuel in chapter 13, verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as the ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here in chapter 25, we see David, much like Saul, anointed by God, but waiting to be publicly affirmed or appointed by God to the throne. And as we'll see, he was facing the temptation to foolishly and impetuously rush ahead of God and assert himself as the king of Israel. Notice how this story begins in verse one. Then Samuel died and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So the chapter begins by just setting the scene for the story and the curtain opens on a natural, national funeral being held in honor of Samuel. People had traveled from all over the, the country to pay their respects to Samuel and his family and, and to mourn beside him at his graveside. And after Samuel's death, David journeyed deeper into the wilderness than he'd ever had to go before to seek refuge from Saul. And that was likely because with Samuel out of the picture now, Saul increased his efforts to dispose of this young king-elect who threatened his reign. 
And so David could no longer rely on Samuel's leadership for wise direction and, and counsel while, we, while he waited upon God during this extremely tense time, and I'm sure at times extremely frustrating transition from Saul to him. And I think what happened in this chapter was God's way of testing David to see if he had a personal agenda like Saul did. And if he would take matters into his own hands and fight his own battles rather than the Lord's battles. And I think God wanted to teach David what John Piper describes in his book, Future Grace, as a, quote, deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience to wait in his place and to go at his pace. That's in a chapter about patience. Which is, this is a great definition of patience. A deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience to wait in his place and to go at his pace. In other words, God wanted David to learn to wait on the Lord, to do things his way and in his time rather than seeking revenge or or seeking power in his own way and his own time. One other thing I think it's important that we note here before we dive into this story is that this chapter is sandwiched between two chapters which both describe how David had a golden opportunity to kill Saul, but he refused to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. And if you just look back at chapter 24, you may have a title uh, over that chapter. There's one in my Bible that says, David spares Saul's life. And this is the account where Saul had gone into a cave to relieve himself, and little did he know that David and his men were hiding in that same cave. And David's mighty one were like, David, God has providentially given Saul over to you. Take him now, kill him. Instead, what did he do? Remember, he cut off a little piece of his robe. I don't know how you got that close, right? while the guy's going to the bathroom. But anyway, cut off a little piece of his robe and after he got out of the cave, he said, hey, Saul, just so you know, I had you, man, but I didn't, I didn't do it. Look at chapter 26. Same title in my Bible, David again spares Saul and this was when Saul was sleeping in the wilderness of Ziph and uh, David and one of his mighty men came upon him and his, his spear was actually sticking in the ground, Saul's spear, and it, the mighty man told David, David, take it, here he is, you've got him. Take, take his spear and drive it through his skull. And David said, no, he's the Lord's anointed. And so even though David spared Saul's life in chapter 24, and in chapter 26, in chapter 25, he almost gave in to his mounting impatience and frustration by slaying one of Saul's loyalists named Nabal. Notice in verse 2, now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And notice the 
parenthetical statement, verse 3, is just really a parenthesis. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. So while this narrative drama, again, focuses on David's conflict with Nabal, Abigail's passing role in God's overarching plan for David steals the show here. And the Spirit of God places this amazing woman in, really, at center stage and directs the spotlight on her, as we're going to see as the story unfolds. And, and she exemplified most, if not all, the qualities of a godly woman explained and illustrated throughout the Bible. And just, just as to kind of to whet your appetite a little bit, but she was the suitable helpmate for her husband that we learn about in Genesis chapter 2. She was the faithful, humble woman of excellence that we see in the book of Ruth. She was the courageous woman of faith who God raised up for a strategic task at a strategic time that we see in the book of Esther. She was the hospitable, hardworking homemaker of the Proverbs 31 woman. She was a submissive and respectful wife, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and 20, uh, verse 33. She was the godly woman of discretion who had adorned herself with good works rather than costly clothes, described in 1 Timothy chapter 2. She was the reverent, sensible, pure, kind, word-honoring woman that we meet in Titus chapter 2, verse 3. And she was the woman whose beauty was more than just skin deep, who had a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God, who sought to win over her disobedient husband by her behavior without being frightened by any fear that we recently met in 1 Peter chapter 3. Well, again, hopefully that excites you to, to meet this woman, to get to know this woman, uh, this, this winsome woman in action. And again, we, we defined winsome a couple of weeks ago as being attractive or appealing in appearance and character. And so the way I want us to kind of view this chapter is, is nine qualities of a winsome woman. Nine qualities of a, of a winsome woman. First of all, Abigail was obedient and content. She was obedient and content. Verse three, now the man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings and he was a Calebite. So again, it's hard to imagine a more unlikely couple than Nabal and Abigail. The word Nabal or the name Nabal means fool. Now, it's unlikely that any parent would name their child fool, so this was probably a nickname that he'd acquired based on his bad reputation. Um, notice verse 17, now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Verse 25 Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man. The word Belial 
or Belial, son of no worth or worthlessness, is the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians 6.15 that says, what does Christ and Belial have in common? Talking about being unequally yoked. And Belial is an ancient term for Satan. And so the Bible compares Nabal to Satan. And so here you have this arrogant, obnoxious, pig-headed man a cruel and tyrannical husband who treated his wife and children harshly. He was a, a corrupt businessman who dealt ruthlessly with his employees and his customers. And he was unequally yoked to this godly gem of a woman. In Proverbs 31.10, it says that a, that, a, that a woman who is described like her, her worth is far above jewels. So here's this Abigail whose name meant father, my father is joy. And it says that she was not only beautiful in appearance, but she was also intelligent. So she had both beauty and brains. I found it interesting, Paul Tripp preached a sermon on this passage and he titled his sermon, Beauty and the Beast. You say, how in the world did these two get together to begin with? Well, this was more than just an extreme case of opposites attracting. Based on the custom of that day, this was most likely an arranged marriage. And Abigail's father may have overlooked Nabal's obvious faults in light of uh, his incredible means to provide for his daughter. She may have been forced to marry him against her will. But she had no choice but to obey her parents' wishes. But nevertheless, this was a major mismatch. A worthless man married to a woman of great worth. And if anybody could claim incompatibility or irreconcilable differences as grounds for divorce, it was Abigail. And yet she remained faithful and obedient to her husband. And I'm sure that living with Nabal was a daily hardship as it is for any woman who is married to a man who only thinks of himself and completely disregards God and, and other people. And so Abigail suffered the humiliation of, of following around her husband and cleaning up his messes, mending the bridges that he burned, seeking forgiveness from those he offended. But by God's all-sufficient grace, she remained content in the midst of her difficult marriage. In fact, I think her marriage to this difficult man was God's custom designed tool that he used to hone her and shape her into the winsome woman that we see her to be in this passage. In other words, she got to be this kind of woman from living with this kind of man. So, first of all, we see that a a winsome woman is obedient and content. Second of all, they're approachable and reasonable. They're approachable and reasonable. Look at verse four. David heard that Nabal was herding the sheep in the wilderness, or shear, shear, excuse me, shearing his sheep. Though shearing season was a, a festive occasion. It was a time of uh, feasting and celebration. Notice verse five. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, 
Visit Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall say, have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears, now that now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you, therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So while lying low in the wilderness, David and his men took upon themselves, uh, took it upon themselves to protect Nabal's herdsmen and his and his herds, his flocks. And David was in need of provision to sustain his entourage in the wilderness. And so uh, Nabal could have very easily helped uh, if he wanted to. In fact, David. Uh, could have helped himself to whatever he needed. Instead of doing that, though, he sent his men to ask Nabal for a gift in return for the protection that he provided for his herdsmen and his flocks. So he's essentially calling in a favor here. This was not a a mafia-style racket where David promised protection in return for payment. This was not a demand. In fact, it was a very humble request by David, who told his men to politely greet Nabal and inquire about his well-being and welfare and wish him peace and prosperity. And he even um, told them to address him as if he was his father and I'm your son. And so very peaceable, very respectful, very honorable way that David went about this. And according to Near Eastern customs and Old Testament laws regarding hospitality, because Nabal was fully capable of providing for David and his men, he was under obligation to do so. And yet Nabal rudely and and selfishly responded to David's appeal for assistance. Notice verse 9. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited, but Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who's David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat and have slaughtered that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So Nabal acted like he he had never heard of David before, which is highly unlikely since by that time his fame was widespread The point was he was probably loyal to Saul and wasn't about to share his, his hard-earned produce to aid and abet a man who he considered to be a rebel or an outlaw. So he hurled insults at David's men and told them to get lost, basically. Notice verse 12. So David's young men retraced their way and went back and they came and told him according to all these words, David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword and David also girded on his sword and about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. All that to say, it was about to go down. Why? Because David was infuriated when his men returned and told him how Nabal had responded and his first impulse was to strap on his sword and go kill Nabal and his entire household. 
And so rather than trusting God and asking him to provide for, for he and his men, David took personal offense at being rebuffed by, by, by Nabal. In other words, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't for me, he wouldn't have any sheep to shear. And his anger got the best of him, and he wanted revenge. Warren Wiersbe made a great comment here. He said, David was a godly man and a gifted leader, but the best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. Notice verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor do we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So there was one herdsman who had overheard the conversation that... uh, that Nabal, their master, had with David's men, and he rushed off to tell Abigail of the dire situation that Nabal had put them all in. And the young man just verified how David's men had indeed provided uh, impenetrable protection for them and their flocks. It was like a, a fortress wall around a city. And he admitted to Abigail, none of us can speak to Nabal. They, 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 they don't, he doesn't listen to us. But they knew that they would have a welcome reception with his wife. Because unlike her husband, she was approachable and she was reasonable. She was also generous and accommodating. Another quality of a winsome woman, a winsome wife. She was generous and accommodating. Look at verse 18. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. So as, as, as soon as Abigail learned of her family's precarious situation, she wasted no time in gathering more than enough food and wine to feed David and his men. And she didn't just provide the basic necessities, but also some special treats, raisins and figs. Those were delicacies. And so in contrast to her husband's stinginess, she was over the top in her generosity and her hospitality. Notice, though, she was also wise and discerning. She was also wise and discerning. Verse 19, she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So here's Abigail wisely intervening on behalf of her husband without him ever even knowing. And she showed great discernment by not including or even informing her husband of her attempt to save their lives. And she was smart to send the supplies ahead of her. If you remember, just like um, Jacob did during his uncertain reunion with his brother Esau. Remember when he had ripped Esau off and he was coming back home? He sent all of, the, all of his gifts ahead of him. 
and said, who, who owns all these sheep? You do, Esau. These are a gift from your brother Jacob. And so he was kind of greasing the slide, right, to make sure that he wasn't going to get his head chopped off or, or uh, run through with a sword uh, if he just showed up empty-handed. And so she was very wise and discerning. She was also confident and courageous. That's the fifth quality of a winsome woman, that she was confident and courageous. Notice verse 20, and it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down towards her, so she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I've guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing has missed was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. This was just confirmation of what Abigail could have only imagined, and that is how hacked off David must have been. And so she knew that she was putting her own life at risk by trying to head him off on his way to kill her husband. And yet she courageously approached David with the confidence that she had gained over years of, of having to lovingly confront her own wicked husband. And so she was courageous, she was confident, but she was also very humble and respectful. She was humble and respectful. Notice verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground and she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame and please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So when Abigail finally met David, she quickly got off her donkey, she bowed down before him and begged him to listen to her. And I think this is so beautiful, it's so powerful that she humbly assumed all the guilt for what had transpired and asked David to forgive her. Because if she had known about the men David had sent, she would have gladly offered them whatever they wanted, whatever they needed. And not only was she respectful to David, she was also respectful to her husband, even though he didn't deserve to be respected. I mean, she could have easily thrown Nabal under the bus on this, big time. But she didn't. She, she didn't say, well, I, I apologize for my husband, he's an idiot. Or I'm sorry about my husband, he's just a jerk. She simply said, he lives up to his name. He's named Nabal for a reason. Again, I can't think of a more respectful way of sharing the truth about her husband's character. And again, if anyone could have felt justified in talking bad about her husband and, and slandering him in front of others, it was Abigail. But she was careful to always honor him and how she talked about him. Sometimes I joke with Kelly when I've not been the greatest husband to her in one of my jerk moments. 
maybe she'll have a lunch schedule with a friend of hers, another gal in the church, and she'll come home and I'll, my first question will be, so did you tell her what a big jerk I am? And she's always like, no. And I honestly, to this day, after been, having been married for 32 years to Kelly, I have never once ever heard or known of her ever speaking negatively about me to someone else. That's a gift from the Lord. That's one of the attributes of the Proverbs 31 woman, that her, that her husband's heart trusts in her, that, he, that she does him no harm. It's a beautiful quality of a godly woman. Someone might argue, though, that Abigail did dishonor her husband because he, he, she went behind his back, undermined his authority. Well, let's consider this for a moment. First of all, her actions are commended by David and they ultimately saved her husband's life. More importantly though, I think the Bible teaches that whenever someone's authority fails, they have every right to respectfully appeal to a higher authority, someone above their immediate authority. So if, if you're a soldier and your immediate uh, commanding officer says or does something, you can always appeal to the, a higher ranking officer. If, if you're Leadership in the home fails, you can appeal to the leadership of the church. And I would also say this, unlike her husband who failed to honor David as the rightful heir to the throne, Abigail respected him as the man of God who had been ordained by God to be the king. And so by coming to him, she was in essence choosing to obey God rather than men. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. So, she was humble and she was respectful. She was also God-focused and kingdom-minded. She was God-focused and kingdom-minded. Notice verse 26. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in all, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling it out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. All of that shows that Abigail had tremendous insight into the, into the ways and the plans of God. For example, she understood that we should never pay back evil for evil to anyone. But if possible, as far as it depends on us, we should be at peace with all men. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David was about to be overcome by evil. And instead of giving his enemy something to eat or something to drink, he was about to run him through with a sword. Until this God-focused, kingdom-minded woman stepped in between him and her husband. And she reminded him not to take revenge on his enemies, but to leave room for God's vengeance. And she encouraged him to to entrust himself to him who judges righteously. Does that sound familiar? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, in light of the fact that, that, that David was the Lord's anointed, ultimately a, a type of Christ. And so Abigail had, had real insight into who David was. He knew, he knew, she knew what he had done. He, she, she, he, she mentioned here about him slaying Goliath with a sling. He, she makes a reference to that and, and, and that she knew what was in store for him, an enduring house, the Davidic covenant that someone, a, a descendant of David would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And she was also convinced that God had used her to restrain him from committing a terrible sin that he would have regretted later. And that could have potentially damaged his his character and and jeopardized his future career as king. Because if David had succeeded in, in shedding the blood of Nabal and his family, he would have proven that he was no different than Saul. That he was fighting his own battles, not the Lord's battles. One commentator said it this way, Abigail raised David's eyes from his hurt pride and set them on the glorious panorama of God's loving purposes for his life. What a a beautiful example of a woman, a wife, helping her husband get his eyes off himself and back on God and his glory. So she was God-focused, kingdom-minded, Number eight, she was also a pacifier and a peacemaker. She was a pacifier and a peacemaker. Notice verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand, nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would have not been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up to your house in peace. So see, I have listened to you and granted your, excuse me, granted your request. So David expresses gratitude to her for her discernment and and diplomacy and thanked her profusely for pacifying his anger and keeping him from destroying Nabal and also um, perhaps his conscience, destroying his own conscience and destroying his, his career. 
So Abigail not only kept her husband from getting killed, but at the same time, spoiler alert, she also kept another man who was about to be her husband from getting revenge. Again, Abigail modeled the important role a woman plays as her husband's helpmate. And men, this is a good reminder. We would do well to listen to our wives because they may keep us from doing stupid things that will come back to bite us and making impulsive decisions that we'll regret. And like David, we need to be sure to thank God and our wives for their wise counsel and their helpful input. Notice verse 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And all the munchkins did the dance, right? Little munchkin dance. Ding dong, the witch is dead. So here's Abigail returning to find her husband gorging himself on food and wine. Once again making a fool of himself and was totally oblivious to how close he had actually come to dying that day. Were it not for the heroic intervention of his, of his quick-thinking wife. And Abigail knew that he wouldn't understand or remember anything that she said to him in his inebriated state. And so she waited until he sobered up the next day to fill him in on what had happened. And again, she did everything she could to pacify him and to be at peace with him. And the next morning when she shared with him how if it weren't for her, he would have been a dead man. When he found out, he was either so livid or so shocked that Perhaps he had a stroke or a heart attack that left him paralyzed. The imagery is here is, you know, that his heart died. He became a stone. He became paralyzed. He couldn't move. And then 10 days later, he died. And the moral of the story is what? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Both Abigail and David left Nabal alone and God dealt with that man in his way and in his time. And God not only vindicated both Abigail and David, but ironically, he also rewarded their obedience with a wedding. Notice how the story ends in verses 39 to 42, and we see the last quality of a, of a winsome woman is that they're submissive and sacrificial. They're submissive and sacrificial. Verse 39, 
When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens, maidens who attended her, and she followed the messenger of David and became his wife. David was a man of action. <laughs> as soon as he heard the news of Nabal's death, he sent a proposal, wanted to marry this woman who he had been so impressed with. And obviously, he had been struck by her beauty, he had been struck by her intelligence, and through their brief encounter, she had proven herself to be the kind of queen, right, the kind of woman who would make a great queen. And notice how submissive she was in her response to this proposal. She felt unworthy to do anything but to wash the feet of this future king. Very Christ-like here. She was not there to be served, but to serve. John 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. I think she was also sacrificial in the sense that she was willing to sacrifice a comfortable life in Carmel, living off the wealth of her late husband. He probably had a very large life insurance policy, right? She was set for life. And yet she was willing to become a fugitive's wife constantly on the run in the wilderness. Well, how's that for a, a Cinderella-like ending, Right? Well, I wish I could promise all of you ladies here who may feel trapped in a difficult marriage that everything's going to turn out just like it did for Abigail. God's going to kill your ungodly husband and bless you with a man after God's own heart. That'd be nice, right? But then that may not be what God has ordained for your life. That may not be the story he's writing about you. Sometimes God does end a difficult situation, but other times he grants us the grace to endure it. And so while you wait upon the Lord, let me encourage you ladies to do a few things if you find yourself in this kind of situation. Number one, joyfully endure your situation knowing that God is using it to develop Abigail-like character in you. You're gonna become this kind of woman being married to the guy that no woman wants. Secondly, prayerfully ask God to give you Abigail-like wisdom because you need it every day. You know you do. Beg him, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously without finding fault. Thirdly, with Abigail-like humility, confess to God any bitterness or malice that you might be harboring in your heart against your husband and pray that God will change your husband's heart in his way and in his time. 
And while you wait, lastly, diligently strive to be a submissive helper and an effective peacemaker like Abigail was. Men, if you have a wife, kids, if you have a mother who reflects these qualities of a winsome woman that we've talked about this morning, then she's worthy of honor. Not just today, but every day. Proverbs 31, 28 says of the woman there described, her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her. That's the proof text for Mother's Day right there. That's what we do on Mother's Day. We rise up as children and we bless our mothers. And we as husbands rise up and we praise our wives. And so maybe a practical way to do that today, if you're going to have lunch together or spend some time together as a family, as the head of the homes, guys, that we can lead a discussion, a, a time of sharing where we can just go around and encourage our wives and our mothers by sharing how the story of Abigail reminded you of them. So if you didn't have a sermon sheet, you better get one now as you head out of here, right? So you can kind of use it as a cheat sheet underneath the table of which one of these things reminded me of my mom? Which one of these things reminded me of my wife? And point out, that, point out those qualities that they have in common with Abigail. I think that would bless them. That would encourage them. That would build them up to know that by the grace of God that God is working in them the character of a godly woman like Abigail. And perhaps if your mom, your wife does not have anything in common with Abigail, honor him anyway. Honor him anyway. And pray that God would make them more like Abigail in his way and in his time. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this precious story that you preserve for us in the Old Testament that is so relevant for our lives even today, 3,000 years later. And so, Lord, help us to, to do a good job today um, praising and honoring the, the women in our lives that you have blessed us with. Uh, they bless us all the time. Uh, Lord, make us a blessing to them today. And Lord, if there is a woman um, in a difficult marriage that they saw themselves in this story in a way that they wish they hadn't, Lord, I pray that the fact that you kept this, preserved this story in the Bible, would that alone give them hope, give them encouragement to know that you know and that you care and that you love them and that you're there to support them and strengthen them and comfort them and give them hope and, 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 and all-sufficient grace to endure what you've ordained for their lives and that you would, in your mercy and grace, uh, accomplish your uh, work in their life, Lord, as a result of this difficult trial that you've ordained for them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.